This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. And good afternoon, everyone. Well, as you know, it's been a a busy session in the House of Assembly over the last couple of weeks. The provincial government has introduced a number of major pieces of legislation, not the least of which is pay equity and pay transparency, which is uh, getting slammed in the House of Assembly from both the progressive conservatives and the NDP as not being progressive. It's just one of a number of major announcements from government since the House of Assembly resumed sitting. The province is now reporting a surplus for this year, yet remain $16 billion in debt. Many Newfoundlanders and Labradorians will receive their $500 check from the province as a cost of living measure. The province is expe- extending sorry, its offer of double-timed nurses to fill major gaps in the healthcare sector. And the investigations continue into a blast at the Come By Chance refinery, which sent eight workers to hospital, one of whom has now passed away. Well, a lot has happened since last we spoke with federal Federation of Labour President Mary Shortle, who joins us now. Hello, Mary. Oh, hi, Linda. How are you? Good. So, yeah, it's been a busy couple of months. It sure has. There's no uh, no shortage of things to talk about, that's for sure. No, for certain. And the first thing I want to talk to you about is the last thing we talked about the last time we spoke. It was just prior to the Labor Day weekend. It was on that fateful Friday afternoon. And the last thing you said to our audience was, be safe. And little did anyone know what would unfold just a few short hours later, that terrible incident at Come By Chance. Is there a a role the Federation of Labor is playing in that ongoing investigation and ensuring that workers are kept safe? Well, I mean, we're not involved in that particular investigation except for to support the unions who are doing that work on the ground who are members of the Federation. So we're there to uh, support them in any way we can, and we keep in touch with them. But I think what the role of the Federation is and has been uh, around occupational health and safety is to make sure that workplaces are as safe and as healthy as possible. And that includes uh, prevention measures. But it also includes making sure the legislation is really tough uh, for uh, any any uh, any time that an employer is found to be negligible and it results in a workplace death or serious injury, then there needs to be really stiff penalties. I mean, this is the 30th anniversary of the uh, Westray uh, explosion where uh, where we saw 26 miners killed on the job where it was shown that the employer uh, was negligible and that uh, resulted in a piece of legislation uh, which we call the Westray bill but is actually an amendment to the Criminal Code of Canada and, and it's uh, it's there to protect employers as well as workers but it does say that if indeed an employer takes shortcuts and, and is found to be negligible Uh, and there is a a serious injury or a death on the job, then they they could actually go to jail. They will pay a price under the Criminal Code of Canada. Uh, Other than that, there's also the occupational health and safety laws and regulations, and uh, OSH Division carries out uh, investigations when there's serious injuries this way. Um, I know the president of the union has said publicly uh, that he believes that the accident was preventable, and they're calling on, you know, both occupational health and safety and the RCMP to make sure that they 
um, that they they conduct a thorough investigation because it's a it's a, a very serious issue when somebody's injured at work. And still in Canada, I mean, every year we see uh, workplace fatalities either through accidents on the job or through occupational diseases. But there's a thousand workers a year in Canada that die uh, either because of the workplace or at the workplace, and that's an awful lot of people uh, in a country that has strong enforceable legislation. So uh, we still have some work to do. And for every worker who dies on the job, there's 25 uh, that are seriously injured to the point where they can't come back to work. So it's still a big issue. Uh, We need to make sure we hold uh, employers' feet to the fire, but also uh, the the lawmakers' feet to the fire uh, to make sure that this doesn't happen. Nobody goes to work expecting to die on the job, and no employer uh, hires people expecting that to happen either. So it really is in everyone's best interest uh, that we uh, we take the time to uh, to make sure that those laws are enforced and uh, to make sure that our workplaces are, are as safe and as healthy as they can be. And nobody expects uh, in their retirement years to suddenly uh, be diagnosed with something that turns out to be related to their career. That's absolutely true. And in fact, occupational disease, um, most cancers, uh, you know, more and more cancers are being added, especially in newer, you know, as as research uh, um, becomes more sophisticated. It's uh, it's thought that about 80% of cancers uh, are environmental or workplace, and so there's uh, there is still, even though you know, good, strong health and safety legislation has uh, has made some diseases um, um, recognizable as occupational diseases and and treatable. There's still an awful lot we don't know, and there's still an awful lot of workers um, who uh, die from occupational diseases and. It's not, you know, it takes years. Uh, sometimes it takes years for those diseases to, to come out, you know, so there's a latency period, and we may not find out about the disease until years later. Uh, but that's happening uh, with more and more science and more and more research that you can detect those uh, things in advance and make sure that the prevention strategies are put in place uh, so that that doesn't happen. And that's why there's strong laws, for example, around the chemicals we use in the workplace uh, and in the mines around asbestos and silicosis and all that stuff. So it's really, really important that uh, when we talk about prevention and talk about strong legislation, that is, you're right, you don't want to spend your whole career um, working hard coming home every day trying to provide for your families and then spend the last years of your life uh, in horrible illness and disease. So that's uh, that's a, a great, big, important part of that whole piece of our, uh, our political work as well around that. Are there any remaining concerns that come by chance? We're starting to hear from Boilermakers who tell us that uh, they still have some pretty serious safety concerns. And in fact, uh, some refused work until those concerns were addressed. Is that a common uh, thing? I mean, I think workplaces, uh, you know, people have to be sure that that, that their own health and safety uh, is going to be protected. And workers have 
uh, you know, three fundamental rights in the workplace that's enshrined in legislation. And one of them is the right to know about all the hazards in the workplace and what they are and uh, what's being done to prevent them. The other one is the right to participate. So they have the right to participate in those decisions uh, about their workplaces to make sure that they're not impacted uh, in unhealthy and safe uh, working conditions. And the other one is every individual worker has the right to refuse unsafe work. And there's a process in place uh, when a worker feels uh, unsafe in order to deal with that. And it's enshrined in legislation how that, uh, how that work uh, happens. And I know in this particular case, uh, the union, is, the steelworkers union is uh, uh, joining with the other unions as well, I'm sure. But they're asking for an inquiry and they're asking to make sure that the investigation is, is, uh, uh, is full and it's very clear that the workplace is safe. Because, again, you know, accidents like that um, are uh, preventable. And so I think workers buy, have the right to be nervous now. I mean, that explosion, um, you know, was was very serious and, and somebody lost their life. Uh, but many workers there, including the others who, uh, who were uh, injured, um, their lives will be different from now on. And, and the workers who experienced that, who were there when that happened and witnessed it, their lives are going to be different from here on in. And uh, it's an awful price to pay. Uh, for having a job, and so it's uh, it's really important that workers feel safe uh, when they go to the workplace. So uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure uh, the unions are working uh, with that employer to make sure uh, that this doesn't happen again. But I know they're also putting pressure on government and and OSH division uh, and the RCMP to make sure the investigation is thorough and that uh, no stone is left unturned in, in uh, fixing fixing whatever it is that. Uh, that makes that workplace uh, unsafe. You mentioned uh, Westray, uh, the Westray bill, and uh, the opposition, I know, in the House of Assembly this week uh, has been calling for this uh, terrible incident to be investigated under Westray law and, and see if there are any potential charges there. Uh, uh, how, what's your understanding of the process and, and whether or not that would apply? Well, it should apply to the the West. The, the amendments to the Criminal Code state that whenever there's a workplace um, fatality or a serious injury, then the first people uh, at, at the accident scene should be the police. And they have investigators who are trained uh, specifically to look at uh, a workplace fatality, for example, as a crime scene rather than just an occupational health and safety accident, right? So it is. It's so they treat it, they investigate it as if it was a crime scene, and then they look for, uh, for issues that way. Um, and the, they're the first ones on the scene, and then Occupational Health and Safety gets involved after, and they share information, and there's either criminal charges laid if, it, if employers found to be negligent, uh, which is very different than a penalty under, under the uh, OSH, OSH uh, legislations because penalties are, you know, they're pun- punitive, but, you, you know, take for a big corporation, you know, $60,000 or $100,000 uh, is one thing, but if an employer is found to be negligible uh, and has to pay uh, either a huge fine or, or serve jail time, then that's a real disincentive for sure to make sure that you're not cutting any, any shortcuts. The problem that this legislation was enacted uh, about 15 years ago, and it was, it was after many years of uh, intensive lobbying at the federal government level, 
uh, by uh, it started by uh, right after the West Ray disaster uh, by the steelworkers primarily, but it was also picked up by other unions and other advocates, uh, including police forces and people who do that work. And uh, the legislation is clear. Um, the problem is it's, it's uh, not been enforced in lots of jurisdictions for lots of reasons. One of them was the lack of um, of police forces who have been trained in that type of investigation because it's not like, you know, one if somebody falls off a roof and uh, loses their life, for example, you know, it's one thing where they pushed off the roof, well, that, that, that's criminal. But to look at it, why did they fall off the roof and liken that to a criminal investigation is a little bit different of an investigation. And so um, to their credit here, Several years ago, the Newfoundland, um, the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary actually um, trained all its investigators. They worked with our federation uh, and others and, uh, and researched what that means to be able to use the uh, the West Ray provisions, and they brought in experts from uh, the Calgary Police Force, which also uh, has trained investigators and other people who do that training. They trained all their investigators uh, to do it, and so they're really committed to that. Um, there's a there's an additional challenge around the judicial system and crown attorneys and prosecutors and judges. You know, everyone has to be aware of the implications of this act, and it's not. Uh, it's not. It hasn't been. Um, there hasn't been as many charges laid as people think should have been laid across the country. So there's still uh, still a lot of work being done to make sure that now that the legislation's in there, uh, the amendment to the criminal code is in there, that it's actually enforced. And so that's another whole challenge. But that work is ongoing. Uh, here in Newfoundland and Labrador, we we've also met with the RCMP. Have a lot of jurisdictions in in rural uh, in rural Newfoundland and Labrador. The other thing around um, um, the come by chance issue, and somebody else brought it up when uh, when I was at the rally in New West Valley when they were talking about health cuts and and hospitals being closed because of uh, health care cuts, and that to rural Newfoundland and Labrador, some of the reasons why these workplaces are in and in areas where they are, fish plants in particular, but also the Combat Chance Refinery, is their distance to emergency services if something goes wrong. And in this case, I remember hearing uh, when when that explosion happened, um, I heard the, the uh, head of the emergency department, Clarenville, being interviewed, who talked about how important it was that, you know, that the hospital was close and ready and had an emergency procedure set up to be able to respond quickly to, to something like that. And, and that uh, really, um, really brings it all together about how governments have to work on the broader issue as well. And so if you're going to have uh, factories or uh, fish plants or refineries uh, or mines in places that are not very close to the, the key centers in Newfoundland and Labrador, we always have to make sure that they're close enough so that when emergencies like this happen, that there's access to that uh, to that public health care uh, and, and emergency services and operations and and uh, you know airlifting and all those things that that play into place. And in this case, uh, by all uh, by all uh, reports that I've heard, uh, it was a very uh, well well worked 
situation and the timing uh, worked out good and they were there when they needed to be and it really made a difference especially for those uh, who were injured who needed immediate attention so you know it's really important too that having uh, the Clarenville emergency room open on that day and all hands on deck and their emergency services uh, understood by everyone and you know when emergency procedures happen uh, that probably um, saved the lives that otherwise may not have been saved for that. Our guest today on On Target is Federation of Labor President Mary Shortle. When we come back after the break, Mary, uh, I want you to address this uh, pay equity and pay transparency legislation introduced this past week. We'll come, be back right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Our guest today is Federation of Labor President Mary Shortle. And uh, Mary, as you well know, the province introduced pay equity and pay transparency legislation this past week. You've called it woefully inadequate. Why? Well, I mean, here's the thing, uh, Linda. I guess during uh, during COVID especially, but, it was, but long before COVID, uh, we know that uh, the majority of, of women workers uh, are the core of, of the economy, right? It, I mean, the Canadian Women's Federation says that, uh, you know, over half of the women workers in Canada are in what they call the five Cs, caring, catering, clerical, cashiering and cleaning work. We know that there's there's certain work jobs and job classifications in our society uh, that are uh, undervalued and underpaid. We've been talking about this for a long time. And in 2017, when Jerry Rogers put forth that ambitious uh, private member's motion uh, that was unanimously, which was historic in and of itself, passed by government, there was a lot of expectations then that the government would commit to uh, to introducing legislation that would deal with that piece of systemic discrimination. So it's not about a group of workers in one particular job classification. It's, you know, what, 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 pay equity legislation is supposed to do is address the systemic undervaluing of jobs that are traditionally formed by women everywhere and to ensure that the people in in those job classifications receive equal pay for work of equal value in jobs uh, that are predominantly held by men. And so that involves uh, public sector workers. It involves private sector workers. And there's there's a um, certain things that that piece of legislation needs to have uh, in order to to give it the teeth that it needs, because obviously, like the federal legislation, if it's going to involve public sector workers and employers, private sector workers and employers, there has to be some some stipulations put in the legislation to help inform uh, employers how to make that happen. And so uh, a couple of things. We were really surprised that it, it appeared like no one had been consulted uh, until that legislation was tabled, which in and of itself is contrary to uh, even what the International Labor Organization uh, says needs to happen in order to have pay equity. I mean, they state in their guide uh, for pay equity that, number one, pay equity is a fundamental human right, and we know that the Supreme Court of Canada has already established that, uh, and you can't 
uh, use women, and, and this is their their uh, quote, the Supreme Court, you can't use women as shock absorbers uh, for the economy. So in other words, you can't grow your economy by uh, discriminating against half of the, the workforce. And so uh, in order to create uh, effective pay equity legislation, there needs to be collaboration among all parties. And that means uh, that means the unions and the employers working together or representatives of the workers working together in order to create that legislation. So shocking first was, was the fact that it appeared like as if nobody had been consulted. Uh, I know for a fact that we had not been consulted and neither had the unions who are represented by the Federation. So I'm assuming that, that there wasn't that type of consultation at the beginning. But when you look at the legislation itself, and I, and I guess we need to do a deeper dive of the legislation as well, but looking at it initially, it, it the equity provisions that are included in that piece of legislation right now are very thin. They don't meet the bar that, that's been set by other jurisdictions even in Canada, like Ontario, Quebec, and the federal um, the federal pay equity legislation. Uh, it looks like it, it's uh, patterned a bit after New Brunswick, but even some of the language from the New Brunswick legislation has been left out of this. So it doesn't uh, define pay equity in a way that actually talks about the elimination of the of gender discrimination in pay in our province. It doesn't apply to the private sector, which is really problematic. It doesn't provide for any involvement of unions. It sets up a process in the workplace that uh, that is conducted unilaterally by employers, which is very not okay, because unless you have those conversations uh, for employers as they set up their plans, uh, then then you're not going to you're not going to have a consistency around the legislation, and you're not going to have a way of evaluating it or monitoring it either. And they're, they're there's, so there's no provision for involvement of unions. Uh, and it doesn't appear to have any of the things that pay equity plans need to have. For in fact, they say in the workplace, every employer has to establish their own pay equity plan. And that means they need to establish a pay equity committee uh, made up uh, equally of, of uh, manager, or not equally, but it, it depends how it shows up, of managers and workers and their unions. It also um, you know, tells you that you have to have a timeline to do something. You have to um, have you have to have a, a job evaluation committee. You have to it sets out the timeline and the guides, and it it gives you a plan, you know, six or seven step plan over a period of time, and how you actually set up a pay equity plan. And in this piece of legislation, as far as I can tell, and again, I've, I've just read it. I haven't really uh, gotten into the weeds of it, which I hope I hope we will do, and I hope we will uh, get some informed and measured responses so that we can uh, make a submission to the provincial government because we'd really like to do that just from our own experience uh, because we've been doing this work for a long time and the Canadian Labour Congress has been a key component of uh, of how the federal legislation came out. So there's lots of expertise. The, the, you don't need to reinvent the wheel anywhere along the way. But the, the another couple of really important things that are missing, it doesn't seem to be any enforceable um, 
things on the pay equity. There is uh, on the employment and pay transparency, which is important as well. But pay transparency is so that individual workers who are applying for jobs can see the history of the pay scale and see uh, to make sure that they're receiving uh, equal pay for work of equal value. Uh, but on the pay equity piece, there's only the requirement on employers to file a report uh, at the end of the year, but there's no real enforcement mechanism that we can see in that legislation. But again, yeah, we'd have to look at it a bit more thoroughly. Uh, and then one other thing in it is that if the legislation is not strong enough, then uh, the regulations, you can have really strong regulations, but they don't have the same weight as the legislation. So it's better to get the teeth in the legislation and then develop the regulations to uh, to support the legislation. And I want to ask you a little bit more about that uh, when we come back after the break. We're overdue for another break. But uh, uh, when we come back, I want to explore that a little bit further. Uh, our guest today on On Target is President of the Federation of Labor, Mary Shortle. We'll be back right after this. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. And our guest today on On Target is the Federation of Labor President, Mary Shortle. And uh, we're talking about pay equity and pay transparency. And Mary, I I know you haven't had that deeper dive into the legislation just yet. uh, But wondering how, in in particular, when it comes to pay transparency, how uh, that works within the confines, I suppose, of privacy legislation, if you know what I'm saying. A lot of workplaces are not that big. Uh, A lot of departments are not that big. So if you have uh, an idea of what your predecessor may have made how does that work or is it uh, sort of the, the position normally pays x amount how come i'm only getting this amount no i think what it does it just allows people when they when they're applying for jobs to see um, that there's been some work done to make sure that the jobs have been uh, evaluated, right? So that they have a value, uh, so that people can feel confident that it's they're not uh, in a job category that's paying under their value. I'm pretty, you know, that, that that's the way it is. And it's and the the language in this legislation, is, as far as I can see, uh, again is is fine there because it does address that. It, you know, it just says. Um, that uh, that the, tr- the, the transparency will be there to make sure that uh, that that you can see that the, the, they've been doing their their job, but still it only talks about it in the private sector, right? So uh, again, the big part of the or public sector, sorry, a big part of the public sector is actually unionized, and collective agreements um, are also public things. So so people can go online and look at a, a collective agreement and see what the wage classifications are, but we know. In, in the public sector, for example, uh, in the unionized uh, piece of, of, say, core government, that there has been uh, a pay equity process in place that's been negotiated a long time ago. And in fact, I think it was the um, the hard work of the union during those sets of negotiations, including uh, you know Nate's lawyer at the time, Sheila Green, having to to bring it to the uh, Supreme Court of. Uh, to Supreme Court to get a ruling on you know whether it's a, it's a, in fact a right to have pay equity and so that that job evaluation that was done um, would be done in order to make sure that uh, based on the criteria of the pillars that uh, Minister Cody talked about in the press release so those pillars uh, you know of, of scale effort responsibility working conditions that, that's a job evaluation. 
uh, that was set up uh, during that period of time for that particular um, uh, pay equity plan. And so that made sure. So as a worker, so with pay transparency now, uh, a worker can go and understand that, you know, this job has been evaluated, uh, that it's transparent, that the, you know, it, it has a history of perhaps it was lower and now it's, uh, now there's been uh, a wage increase because of that evaluation. Or they can say, you know, I know the value of my work in another workplace. If I'm clerical, for example, it's such and such. This is paying a lot less than that. Uh, perhaps this is not the job I'm going to apply for at the time, whatever. So it, it, it makes it just helps people make decisions, and that's good on an individual basis. Basis, uh, which is not what pay equity is set to do, because pay equity is set to eliminate the discrimination that exists in the system, that's existed a long time in the system uh, because of the way jobs have been valued over a long period of time. But pay equity plans, just like pay transparency plans, are individual to employers, and they're in the you know so that each employer has an obligation under a pay equity plan to examine uh, all the job classifications in their uh, business or in their uh, in their company, and then they have a, a set of criteria that they need to put in place to measure uh, the value of those uh, of those classifications because they have separated the ones which are predominantly male or female, and then they have to uh, put together uh, an evaluation. Uh, with uh, with help from the workforce uh, to make sure that they can uh, to look at the value of that, and then under a pay equity legislation, they have to increase the compensation in order to uh, make sure that the value uh, for the if work is valued the same way, uh, then that the pay is equal pay for work of equal value. So it's a step beyond uh, you know years ago there used to be men's wages, women's wages, and then years and years ago children. Children's wages and legislation came into place to enforce employers to say you have to pay uh, if people are doing the same work they have to be paid the same pay and that's easy to understand you know equal pay for equal work which wasn't always the case but it ha- it took legislation in order to enforce that and I, I don't know if there was no legislation today uh, that might still exist in today's world but so uh, this legislation pay legislation is no different it says you still have to pay people equally uh, for doing work of equal value and uh, and the difference between equality and equal is that is that you have have to sometimes put measures in place to make sure people achieve equality. So it's it's doing adjusting whatever it is you have to adjust to create that equality in your workforce because those jobs are not they're segregated, uh, you know, based on gender, and, and it's been proven over and over again that the jobs that are paid the least. Uh, in in workplaces, uh, very often are the ones that are uh, female dominated versus male dominated in the one workplace, and you can see that. I use the example, um, you know, if you have uh, uh, clerical workers in the workplace and you have maintenance staff in the workplace, and uh, clerical workers historically uh, are predominantly female, and uh, 
maintenance workers uh, might be predominantly male. And when you study those two classifications uh, and you're looking not at just educational requirements, for example, but you're looking at a whole bunch of other criteria, you may find that their jobs are of equal value, uh, but it may be that one group is making less than the other. It's usually the, the women's group that are making less, so there needs to be an adjustment to, to compensate for that. Now, pay equity legislation doesn't happen overnight. Employers are given a lot of time to put plans into place and make it work. You know, I think the federal government is two or three years from start to finish. So it, and, and there's guides and, and lots of expertise out there to help employers uh, maneuver that. And, you know, the, they set the bar at, at how many employers you have to have before you put that in place. In the federal government, it's, uh, it's public and private. Uh, and for private uh, um, employers under federal jurisdiction, anyone with 10 or more employees has to produce a pay equity plan and report on it. Our guest today on On Target is President of the Federation of Labor, Mary Shortle. And Mary, when we come back after the break, because we're overdue for another break, uh, is um, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, this surplus that the provincial government is finding itself in, even though we're still very much in debt, uh, when we come back after the break. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Our guest today is Federation of Labor President uh, Mary Shortle. And, of course, there's so much has happened since the last time you and I spoke, Mary, and it's not that long ago, as a matter of fact. Um, but the province now reporting a surplus and is setting aside money in a future fund to pay down the debt. Is that a prudent approach? Well, I mean, I, I think you know, the term is used that the economy is, is doing better, but I think the economy is not. I think the, the, you know, the snapshot in time, uh, the province finances are doing better, and that's based, it, it's, it's funny in a way, it, 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 because the same thing that is, is causing the province to have more revenue uh, is also ca- part of what's causing inflation that's, that's making it harder for, and harder uh, for ordinary folks to, to support themselves. So the oil and gas um, profits and the profits from you know, other extraordinary profits and supply change, all of those have, have contributed to the, the huge inflation now, which is uh, putting more and more people uh, into poverty and making it harder and harder for people to make ends meet. And at the same time, it's created excess money uh, in, this, in this period of time. Uh, because of our boom and bust uh, economy. And I'm not sure that putting it away in a future fund for a rainy day is is a particularly sound policy at this point, because the rainy day for a lot of the people in this in this province is right now, and they're having it uh, harder and harder to meet. Uh, and I think... Um, especially at this time, we perhaps need to talk about what are we going to do to strengthen that social safety net or invest more in the public services, which are the great equalizer uh, when things are tough on so many families, uh, or what is it we're going to be looking at. And I think the other, I remember back in in the previous government uh, when oil prices uh, went uh, skyrocketed and the economy was doing really well, 
and the government used that money to uh, to give a big tax break to individuals and corporations, which has really cost us over the years uh, in a bad way. So, you know, my caution around that is that perhaps that money, that, that, that little bit of extra money needs to be invested back to make sure that everybody uh, can uh, can benefit from that. But the, the bigger thing, if we're, if we're looking at what we need to put aside uh, for future, I think we really need to have a conversation about just transition. We need to talk about, you know, this is not going to last forever. We know this is not going to last forever. Everyone's been talking about that, even if it does doesn't happen for 10 or 20 years, we still need to have a vision of what, how we're going to make sure that workers can transition into whatever new jobs are being created in a way that maintains decent work for them and their families. And we're not having those conversations. We're not looking at, you know, how do we support immigration uh, through our public services, make sure that we have all those services in place. Uh, how do we look at our educational, uh, public sector education, institutions to make sure that we're attracting uh, people who want to live here and work here and that they can be supported while we're here. So it's part of, you, may, you know, it's part of a bigger conversation, I think, and uh, uh, I'm pretty sure that putting it away for uh, a rainy day at this point while people are really having tough times, meaning and it's going to get worse by all, uh, by all indications. We're heading into a recession, so more and more people are going to fall through the cracks that we really need to be talking about, you know, living wages and, and propping up our social safety net and uh, making sure that we're protected that way as well so that we can do better in the future. And, and it's kind of ironic that the uh, provincial government was making this announcement while at the same time Christia Freeland was warning of a recession that she yeah. says could last for an extended period and result in quite a few job losses. Yeah, it, it, and that's I mean, that's a scary thing. And it, and it, it wasn't workers who caused the inflation. It's not workers who are putting up the interest rates. Uh, but it, it unfortunately is workers that pay the price of that. And so uh, governments, uh, we believe, need to be very cognizant of that and, and act now to put in some support measures. Uh, like they did during COVID, you know, in a way, but in a way that uh, that helps people get through this period of time and not balance the books. I mean, there's a time to balance the books, but you need to balance the economy as well. And right now the economy is not balanced. It's uh, There's a big gap between uh, those who have and those who have not, and we really need to be addressing that as well. But balancing those books is important too, is it not? Because, I mean, it, the, the fact that we are paying so much to service uh, our extraordinary debt is taking away from the services that we all need. Yeah, it is important that over periods of time we, we manage our economy, absolutely. But there are periods of time when the economy is in a downturn when we just need to, to pause that obsession with balancing our books as, a, as an outcome because it's not an outcome. Balancing your book is an outcome to something else, like to when you balance your book books because you want the province to grow, right? And so you also need the economy to be balanced. So so it's a cyclical uh, time. So so there's, there needs to be um, 
a lot of thought given into doing that. It's no sense to balance the books when you have people that can't afford to live or work here. So, you know, and we and our economy is not growing. You know, austerity measures have never have never helped us grow our economy, and I mean, we've we've stuck by that mantra for a long time. But yes, be prudent and make good fiscal uh, uh, decisions and make investments into the economy in a way that makes sure that people are still protected. Uh, that people aren't living in destitute because poverty actually costs this province. And this came out very recently uh, by uh, uh, the polling that was done in Atlantic Canada. But the but poverty actually costs the province of Newfoundland and Labrador almost a billion dollars a year. So poverty costs more than no poverty. So, uh, you know, there's where you have to find that balance. And so just balancing the books uh, without any thought to anything else uh, in our opinion, it's not a prudent uh, policy measure either. Mary Shortle, an hour goes awfully quickly. I, I, I do appreciate your time. Uh, thank you very much this afternoon. It's my pleasure. Thanks for talking about all these important issues. They're really good conversations. Thank you. And we'll be back tomorrow. Stay tuned for that. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone.